All right, we are, uh, we are in the second week after Easter. The lectionary text this week is uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 21. Uh, and it's supposed to be 21, verses 1 through 14. Uh, but there's just too much that's going on in those verses, as far as I'm concerned. And since I know more than the lectionary people, uh, I have decided uh, that we're only going to look at 1 through 8 tonight, and we'll cover the next, next week, the rest of next week, most likely. Um, and so we're, we're going to just kind of talk about uh, the fishing part of this story before we get to the Jesus and Peter having their conversation, the do you love me's and the feed my sheeps and all that stuff that come immediately following this. So I want to I look at these verses, and, and I'm going to substitute a couple words as we're reading through compared to what you see up there, because I accidentally put uh, a NIV instead of the NRSV, which is what um, I was preparing from and has better translation on a couple words. So when you hear me uh, say something that doesn't match the screen, I'm not just doing it because I've created my own Mike Dixon revised version of it, but uh, because that's actually a better translation for the Greek terms uh, that are there. Uh, so let's go ahead and look at John 21, verses 1 through 8, and then we will talk about these, uh, this story together. It says, Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Didymus, uh, the twin, uh, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. Uh, two who just don't get names. <laughs> This is great. And two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, children, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he was naked, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. And we'll stop there. So last week we talked about the disciples, the disciples who were locked uh, in the same room they were the week before, uh, the disciples who had witnessed the resurrection of Jesus and Thomas had not, and, and Thomas said, I want to experience the same thing you have. We talked about those disciples locked in the room uh, before and after they witnessed the resurrection last week. And now we find those same disciples, we don't know exactly how long later, but we know those same disciples are out fishing. And the first question that presents itself to me as I think about this is, why? Why are they out fishing right now? I wish there was a little better dialogue. Um, you know, there's quotes around it, but I feel like the conversation had to be different than just Simon Peter saying, I'm going out to fish, and then saying, we will go with you, and then they just get in a boat and go. But this is one of those moments where I wouldn't mind having the narrator step in and tell us the motivations. Why are the disciples doing what they're doing, right? A couple of weeks back, we talked about uh, Judas protesting that uh, Mary had poured out a whole jar of expensive nard onto Jesus' feet, uh, and, uh, and he said we could have sold that to the poor, and the narrator says, I just, you know, Judas doesn't actually care about the boar. He used to steal from the purse, right? And so we know what his motivations are. We know how to interpret what he's saying. But we get no such help here. We know they're together. We know they're outside the locked room. That's good. And we know Peter wants to fish. 
But we don't know much else, right? And like pretty much everything, there is no distance between what Peter wants to do and him doing it. So he wants to fish, they go fishing. The others don't protest. The disciples all go fishing together. But why? Why are they out fishing? Now, when I grew up, uh, all the sermons I ever, and teachings I ever remember hearing about this, talked about the disciples here basically abandoning their call from Jesus, right? They're going back to life before Christ. They were fishermen before Jesus came along. They were with Jesus. Now that Jesus is gone, they're just going back to being fishermen. They're kind of almost denying who Christ is, right? And that was kind of the, uh, the story and the sermon most of the time was along those lines. Don't be like that. And honestly, that's a possibility. Uh, I mean, the disciples have not been quick to follow Jesus and to jump on things. They've hesitated. They've been in locked rooms. They've denied him. They've done all those things. So that is a possibility. But to be honest, this doesn't look to me or feel to me like some kind of apostasy that they're all doing where they're all leaving and going back to their lives and saying, forget all this. That's just not how I read it. It doesn't seem to me that they're angry, taking their toys and headed back to the house. Now, even though they have witnessed resurrection, keep in mind what they have been through in the recent past. The person they gave their lives to, the person who was leading them for the previous years is now gone. The whole world is shifting underneath their feet. Then they have to figure out, how do you live in this new world? And they're tired, and they're disoriented, and they don't know what's going on, right? And what do you do when you're exhausted, and you're unsure, and you're disoriented? Often, at least I think I do this, a lot of us, we go back to something we know, something we can kind of get our hands around, right? Something comfortable, maybe predictable. Something that maybe at least feels like it's under our control, even if it's really not. And it's not, because they don't catch any fish. But something that feels like it's under your control, and maybe something you feel like you're good at. You take sanctuary in the familiar. I know how to do this, right? I think you know how to do this as well. And besides this... These disciples, for these disciples, the other thing you got to remember is, although we kind of read these snapshots throughout Scripture, and a lot of times they're these mountaintop experiences, right? They're tongues of fire, and there's all these amazing things happening in Acts coming up, and we think about all those things. They also just lived every moment of every day lives. And for these disciples, the normal part of life doesn't just stop. Life is still happening for them. They still have to live. They still have to eat. They still have to work. They have to sleep someplace. They've got to figure out what to do in this world. And they know how to fish. It makes sense to me that they'd go back to that. I mean, yes, Jesus miraculously conquered death. That's amazing. But his resurrection didn't end day-to-day life for the disciples. They still got to do what you got to do in life, just like any of us. And while the backdrop may look different, while their values and their priorities are hopefully rearranged in this new reality, faith in the resurrection doesn't mean you get to kind of float above the daily needs and daily concerns of the world as much as we would love it to mean that some days. These disciples were, I'm sure, disoriented, frayed at the edges after all they have been through. They're just now waking up to this world after Christ. without Christ with them every day, they have to do something. They go fishing. 
It makes sense to me. I don't see the choice to go fishing as any kind of moral failing on their part. And I think a good case for reading it this way would be the way that Jesus seems completely unbothered that they're out there on the water. In fact, when he calls out to them from shore, and this is one of those words that you heard me read differently than what we had in the translation up there, he calls them children, not friends or anything else. It's the word children. Same thing as, you know, bid the little children to come to me. It's a term of intimacy and endearment. It's a loving way to talk to them. Jesus is being paternal here. He's not angry or dismissive about what they're doing. And it is worth pausing to consider Again, that Christ is perfectly comfortable with this. And I think that's important. At least what resounded with me today, uh, this week as I was studying this is, I need to accept uh, that Christ was good with this for them because I'm not sure if you grew up with me, but I have spent, and I still sometimes do, spend a lot of time feeling guilty about not being a spiritual hero at all times about how, honestly, kind of boring and mundane my life can be, and I can be from time to time, right? Because I would read these stories, and I grew up with these stories about giants being slain, armies being defeated, seas parting, and disciples walking on water, and for the vast majority of my life, arguably all of it, I was none of those things, and I'm still not, right? I'm going to finish this service tonight done with a handful of people in this room. We've been hanging out for 14 years and doing this. And then we'll head to the house and we'll wrestle kids and try and get them to eat something of value and get them to go to bed at a reasonable hour so that we can continue watching shows that are too mature for them after they go to bed. And later in the night, as I'm falling asleep, approximately 12 seconds after I get in bed, it all feels very ordinary. And at times, in my worst moments, I can begin to feel small and maybe insignificant because nothing heroic happened in that day. All I did was work and take care of kids and eat and sleep, and tomorrow I'll do it again. My life is not Instagram-worthy, which is the chief of all modern sins. But I don't believe that's an actual scriptural way to look at faith. I know the mundane feels unholy. The mundane and boring feels like it has no lasting value. And yet over and over again in scripture, we see Christ show up in the normalcy of life. Jesus shows up. God is incarnate while people are fishing and eating and getting married and grieving. And when Jesus tells stories, they're not of big grandiose things, right? He tells stories from vineyards and day laborers and housekeepers sweeping and looking for lost coins. And that means something. That's that way for a reason, right? That is the craziness and the beauty of incarnation. Incarnation tells us that it's not that the gods are out there, uh, you know, shooting bolts of lightning across the cosmos and flicking constellations across the celestial expanse. Instead, the incarnate God is with us in the moment-by-moment life. The incarnate God laughs and cries and eats and sleeps and dies and returns. The incarnate God that we follow 
spent roughly 90% of his life in in an unremarkable enough way as to not even be mentioned in Scripture. We see he's born. He's that one little thing when he's an adolescent where he's supposed to be with his parents and he's not for a second. And then we catch him when he's somewhere around 30 years old. Arguably 30 of his 33 years are boring. At least not worth noting in Scripture according to them. And maybe that's weird or maybe that's disturbing. I find that very encouraging because <laughs> at least 90% of my life is boring too. The incarnation makes a sacrament out of the common. Our lives, even the boring parts, matter to God. In other words, fishing isn't just fishing anymore for the disciples or for us. In fact, if you look in the Greek, in the, the term that the writer uses here for hauling in the fish, that hauling word that he used over again, is, is a weird word to use there. In fact, it's the verb that Jesus uses when he talks about drawing people unto himself. It's not what you would typically use when you're talking about fishing. Fishing isn't just fishing anymore. There's something deeper going on here. Fishing isn't just fishing anymore. There's no place too common, no activity too normal for Christ not to show up. And because this is true, I think we can take some cues from the disciples we see here. Instead of bemoaning the fact that they have somehow abandoned Jesus and are going back to fishing, I think we can admire what happens. They're out there doing this same old common thing, the thing they've done a million times. And then you have John. John who recognizes the abundance in the midst of the mundane and names it for what it is. John who's the first to call attention to the Lord, to recognize Christ in their midst. When no one else saw who it was, even though he was right there. And how often do we make that mistake? John who discerns the holy and the miraculous in the middle of the common. In the middle of that thing they'd done a thousand times without thinking about. May we have the discernment of John. May we be people who even in the midst of our common, boring, mundane lives are attuned to the presence of Christ in those moments. May we have the discernment of John who's the first one to realize that they weren't just fishing anymore. And then there's Peter. What a weirdo Peter is. Peter, always impulsive, always excitable, always the live wire, always acting before he's thinking. Peter, who as far as we can tell from what's written here, may have been the only one on the boat who was fishing naked, as one does. And I'm assuming the other disciples didn't know that part of the deal before they agreed to go on the boat with him. I know that would be a deal breaker for me if you asked me to go fishing. And pretty awkward once you're out there in the water and it happens, right? Peter, who's out there fishing naked, again, as one does. Peter, who hears from John that it's Jesus on shore. He hears Jesus identified on shore. Not that far away, by the way. About 100 yards. You can get to it with the boat pretty quick. He hears that Jesus is identified, and he just sort of loses his mind. He doesn't help draw up the fish under the boat. He doesn't help get the boat and all the disciples to Christ who's out there. He doesn't even swim naked, which honestly makes way more sense than fishing naked. 
No, he puts on his clothes, then he jumps in the water, and then he swims. When they have a boat. Right? This sounds a lot like the decision-making of my own children. I don't know about the other parents in here, but it's just not thought out well. It's a feeling, and it's an action at the same time. Not strategic, not careful, but undeterred and relentless. He's a bit of a maniac, but may we have the eagerness of Peter. And the rest of the disciples, even the ones who aren't named, who dutifully struggle to bring in the net, who stay in the boat and try to manage the blessings of God. They haul it back to the shore so that it might be used for everyone's good. May we be as good as stewards of God's blessings as those who are still in the boat. May we have the discernment of John. May we have the eagerness of Peter. May we dutifully do what we need to do like the other disciples. May we have a little bit of all of them in us. Because by the end of this story, they know that now, in this post-resurrection world, fishing is never just fishing anymore. There doesn't have to be tongues of fire. There doesn't have to be exorcism or emptied tombs for a moment to matter. It all matters. Teaching isn't just teaching anymore. Doctoring isn't just doctoring anymore. I don't know if that's a term, but doctoring isn't just doctoring anymore. Serving isn't just serving anymore. Parenting isn't just parenting anymore. Befriending is not just being a friend anymore. It all matters. It's all consecrated time in the world of incarnation and resurrection. It is all the sacred elements of God's presence in this world. It all matters. It's all set aside. It's all consecrated. It's exactly the kind of place that God and God's abundance loves to show up if we can just see it and pursue it. The question is whether we will recognize the miracle, forget what we think we know, and chase it down. Because life isn't just life. And that's a beautiful thing. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful We are grateful for the stories in Scripture of everyday people. Those who are impulsive and compulsive, those who don't think things through, those who make mistakes constantly, those who fall short time after time after time, those who just are living their everyday, average, normal, common lives. God, thank you that that is the fodder for your story. Thank you that these are the characters you work with. Thank you that the lives we lead, however mundane they may seem sometimes, mean something more. God, we ask that you help us to see you in the moments. 
Lord, we ask that you help us to recognize the consecration of our own lives. May we be people who know that fishing is not just fishing anymore. Lord, we do love you and we ask all these things in your name. Amen.